Matthew chapter 6. Take your scriptures and get there. We are making our way. I really feel for you. Many of you have made backhanded, uh, quote-unquote, compliments about how thorough we have been in this section. <clears throat> Don't worry, I read right through that. I got that. When you thank me for being thorough, I understand what you're really saying is how much longer are we going to be in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, today, I trust, it's my goal, to wrap up this section um, of the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount and move us forward and uh, keep plodding forward in this study. I trust this has been rich for you. It's been extremely rich for me. It's been convicting, and it has renewed my thinking about prayer, and it's helped me rethink uh, the general routine of prayer in my life and the areas where that routine is not what it should be or it's not even there. Uh, There are facets, no doubt, in your life as well as in mine where prayer should be present and it's missing altogether. And uh, we need to add prayer at times and we need to correct prayer that's already there more often than not. So I I trust that's what we're learning through this study. Now let me read just to set the course for us and to make sure that we're all on the same page. I'm going to read in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 6 and we'll read all the way through verse 15 this morning and uh, kind of set the context for us if you haven't been with us. And when you pray, verse 7 says, do not heap up empty phrases the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. And here's the model that the Lord gives to us, His disciples. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And this is the word of the Lord. And this morning in particular, we're going to focus our attention on verses 11 through 15 and conclude this study of the disciples' prayer. Now, before we jump into our study of what is here in our text, I want to take a minute to uh, scratch an itch that many of you have brought to my attention and talk about what is not included in this morning's text. And what is not included is the glorious crescendo to the chorus Thine be the power and the glory and the majesty and all the ending that comes with the Sermon on the Mount. Or, I'm sorry, on the Disciples' Prayer here in the Sermon on the Mount. Most of you have known this ending at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Right? And it's really hard to sing this song, let me tell you, without that. And as I was singing it this morning in the shower, to the blessing I'm sure of my neighbors... Um, I included that section, but here we are in our ESV, or you are in your translation, a modern translation, New American Standard, may have this in brackets or in in italics. Um, If you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, you have that included at the end of verse 13. And if you have some other version, most of you will have a note in your margin. If you have the ESV, you'll look down at the bottom of the page and you'll find that there's a little note that says, some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, let's talk just briefly before we jump in here about the missing doxology 
at the end of the disciples' prayer. Why is it that the King James Version and its family, which includes the New King James, has that ending and the other translations that you may have, whether it be an NIV, an ESV, a New American Standard, or some other translation, probably either has it in a very special form or doesn't have it at all and only makes reference to it in the margin. The phrase that we find missing here is found in some of the manuscripts that make up our uh, copies that we utilize for the New Testament in the Greek language. But in the earliest manuscripts that we have found to this point, the oldest manuscripts, if you will, and the best oldest manuscripts, it's missing. It's not there. That leads us to wonder, why is it that newer manuscripts have it and older ones don't have it? And the newer ones that have it, have it in varied forms. You find different words in some of them. You find some words cut out, some words added, and it looks different depending on where you find it. Well, there's a process that is utilized for deciphering and distinguishing what, in fact, was the original understanding or the original um, revelation that Matthew recorded for us here. That's a process that under the, the work of the Holy Spirit is accomplished by those who can study those manuscripts and study those copies, specifically those who have been trained to do so, which is a relatively small group of people. So you're left, unless you are the... Uh, unknown Greek scholar sitting here with us this morning, and I would add myself into not being in that group, although I can interact maybe a little bit more, you're left with just this little note, some manuscripts add for yours is the kingdom and power and the glory forever, amen. You ask yourself, well then why didn't we put it in there if some manuscripts have it? The reason is the translation committee for the English Standard Version and the translation committee for the New American Standard Version, both of those are very are evangelical and concerned about the wording of your scriptures, were convinced that because the oldest manuscripts they could touch did not include it, and because the later manuscripts that have it had it in various forms, that in fact it was an added-on ending to this passage at some point in the copying of God's Word in the New Testament. Some scribe somewhere probably in some monastery as a monk with his nice brown hood on, got to the end of this prayer and thought to himself, this cannot be right. I must have had an error in this copy that I'm using as my copy because I'm looking at this and there's nothing that ends this prayer. There's no doxology. And this would be natural. When we pray, we, we even today, we conclude our prayers with a doxology. And certainly would have been the case in the Hebrew prayer practice. So some scribe at some point hoping to conclude with what is true and what is helpful to round out this prayer included that doxology. That then was sent to the next copyist. Who copied that from that copy? Who copied that from that copy? Some, going back to older copies, seeing that it's not there, are adjusting it. Ultimately, we have a lot of confusion about what is or what is not included in the original book of Matthew. And that's what we're most concerned about. We're most concerned about what did the original book of Matthew say? And there's a little problem with that question. We don't have it. We don't have the original, the original book of Matthew. 
I don't know if you know this, but we don't have any of the original documents of our New Testament. And so God, in his miraculous preservation of his word, has preserved for us over 5,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament. And the difference between those manuscripts is so minor that it is obvious that his spirit has been at work in preserving his word for us. Now we take those manuscripts and we try to make the best decision that we can with any particular passage where there's a difference. And in this case, our translators came to the conclusion that that phrase was actually not original to the book of Matthew. So they added it in a footnote because of its commonality in the English language because of the King James Version. Okay? Everybody knows what the King James Version says. That's the assumption. That's the most common and most familiar and most widely spread English translation of the Bible. Therefore, the ESV at least gives us the comment that helps us know why it's in the King James and not here in the English Standard Version. That does not mean that the King James is less God's Word or that the English Standard Version is less God's Word. It just means that there are portions in our New Testament where we have question about which phraseology was the original phraseology and we must land on a conclusion based on the evidence that God has preserved for us. And therefore, when we read in English a translation of what was copied in Greek, we're left with this difficulty at very few but very distinct sections of your New Testament. And if that is brand new information to you, then I understand the questions that can come with that. I'd be more than willing to sit down and talk with you. But I wanted you to know why it's not there and why it is included in other translations, and particularly the family of the King James Version, which was translated from a very specific family of manuscripts of copies of the New Testament. Everybody gone now? You out there? Hello? Okay, got a lot of glazed eyes. Uh, Let's jump into what is here. And let me review for you in this prayer that the Lord has given to us as this model for us. And by the way, before I leave the, I want to say one more thing before I leave that doxology. That doxology is absolutely true. Absolutely true. There's not one part of that doxology that is not biblical, that is not absolutely true about God. It is the desire of his people for his kingdom and his power and his glory to be forever. And it is a fitting conclusion to this prayer. The difference would be that we do not, and I would agree with the English Standard Version Translation Committee, that we do not believe that that was the ending that Jesus put on this model prayer. Okay? All right, now I've said enough. All right, let's review back. What is the foundational, or what are the foundational principles, rather, that we are to establish our prayer life upon? And we find these from the first two verses of the disciples' prayer. And these are critical for our review. First of all, we looked at the recognition of who God is. This drives our prayer life, our Father in heaven. This is a prayer that is from his children. This is not just a generic prayer that anybody can pray. This is kingdom citizen prayer life. Okay? And it is focused first and foremost on who God is. And from that flows then a desire to see God receive what he deserves. Not only what he deserves in verse 9 but also to see what he has planned come to pass in verse 10 and what he desires to be accomplished at the end of verse 10. And so the foundational principles of our prayer life as kingdom citizens are squarely placed on the person of God himself, right? That's where we start. We are interacting with God, not as a hypocrite whose focus is on himself, 
and not as a pagan who has no God to communicate to, who is simply using repetition to hopefully get the attention of some distant, small-d deity. We are communing in a living relationship with the very God of heaven, and our focus in prayer is Him. He is the highest level in our prayer. He is the goal of our prayer. It is His glory that we are centered on. It is His name that we desired to be hallowed. It is His kingdom that we want to come, and it is His will that we desire to see done and obeyed. So this is the foundation. A God-centered prayer life is a kingdom citizen prayer life. And I don't know about you, but in the practical application of this over these last couple of weeks, I've really tried to give myself to thinking through before I pray what it is that I am, who it is that I'm interacting with, and what it is that I know to be true about the God who is listening to me pray. That takes some presuppositions on our part that God is in fact listening to us pray because we are coming on the basis of the sacrifice of His Son. That takes into account that He cares for us and that He loves us as His own. And so when we come to prayer, when I have been coming to prayer, it has been somewhat of a challenge to focus myself before I ever focus my attention on myself, to focus squarely on God who he is, what he deserves, what he plans for, and what he desires. And yet, that is the model of what the Lord gives us as the bedrock to our prayer lives. Now, when we get to verse 11 through verse 13, we start clicking. Okay, now this sounds more like what I do. Give me this, or Lord, please provide this, or help me with this particular facet of my life, or God, Preserve me from this particular failure. Those are the kind of things that we associate with prayer, whether it be for someone else or whether it be for our own lives. And yet I think it's dangerous for us this morning, because we've sliced up the disciples' prayer, that we do not lose the context of verses 9 and 10 as we jump into verses 11, 12, and 13. You start with God. He's at the center and as we move to the concerns of our own lives, he remains at the center. All right? It's not that we start there and then we leave and we talk about ourselves. God stays right in the middle of our prayer life. He is at the pinnacle and we are in our concern for our own needs. We are concerned with his desires, his kingdom, his will to be done. Now, all of that brings us to a proper view of God. It really does. If we are to pray the disciples' prayer, it will help you if you're struggling with a low view of who God is, maybe sinful thoughts about God and about his power, the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, will help you. It establishes your mind on the realities that are true about God. And that leaves you with a desperate view of yourself, which is no news to the kingdom citizen, right? We began in the kingdom because we were crushed. We were poor in spirit. We were bankrupt spiritually. And we saw ourselves for who we really were. And because of that, we cried out in faith and depended upon Christ. And God saved us. Our prayer life is no different. Because we see Him for who He is, we are now left with a desperate view of our own existence. And that desperate view of ourselves leads to a simplistic and a very specific attention to priorities in our lives. And those priorities are given to us in verses 11, 12, and 13. 
A right view of God establishes a right view of man. Okay? Your world tells you that a right view of God establishes a right view of man. Okay? It's the other way around. When we see God for who he is, we see ourselves desperately. We are in desperate need of his intervention. And as we see ourselves for who we are in comparison to the God to whom we pray, we are left with a very specific and a very desperate set of priorities in prayer. Those priorities are turned to petitions, and we're going to see them this morning, three powerful petitions that mark the kingdom citizen's prayer life. Our pronouns have changed from yours to ours, and we focus on the desires and the needs of our life now in response to the character and the desires of our God. I am a, I have been, I am not at the present, but I have been an avid reader of Louis L'Amour novels, and I've mentioned this before. I love and uh, uh, highly value my Louis L'Amour collection, <clears throat> which includes, I don't know how many of his books, but many, many, many of his books. One of the things that, one of the scenes that comes up, and if you're one of those literary buffs that thinks that all Louis L'Amour books are the same, so they're, they're silly, well, you can just keep your opinion to yourself. Right? I just had to get that out there. You can keep it to yourself. Because there are those of us who love it and want it to be cowboys, and that's as close as we're going to get. All right? And cowboys may at some point in their lives find themselves wandering through the wilderness of the desert. The Apaches have shot out their water canister, and so they have no water left. And they're at the end of their rope. And if you've read a Louis L'Amour novel, you know what this guy looks like. He's got cracked and blistered lips. Uh, He is delirious from the sun beating down upon him. It's like Palm Springs where they're having resolved. It's like 120 degrees. And he keeps thinking that if he follows this particular pattern, he thinks that there might be a little spring. And and it's kind of early in the summer, so it might not be dried up yet. He's just desperate to get there and find out. And usually he gets there and he finds out that unfortunately a coyote died and now it's laying in the pool and the pool's poisoned and we move on in desperation to the next watering hole which is some 12 miles away. Right? All that to say, when a man in a Lulamore novel is in that desperate of a scenario, you find his priorities become very specific. There's no man stuck in the desert without water dying in the heat of the sun, who is wondering if he's going to have enough spare change to reshoe his horse when he gets back to town. He's not thinking about that. He's thinking about one thing. He's desperate for one priority, and it's water. He wants to survive. Some of the Louis L'Amour characters are convicted as criminals, and they are going to die, and usually they're wrongly convicted, and they're going to hang for some crime that they did not commit in the the big cattle boss is the one who's driving this whole scenario and he's got an agenda and he's going to kill off this good cowboy and uh, remove him from the scene so that his agenda can go forward. No cowboy sitting in the jail cell waiting to be strung up is sitting there wondering what, it, what he could do to make his front porch look a little bit better. What possessions he might be willing to buy 
you know, a new rocking chair would really dress up the place. No, he has one priority. He's only thinking about one thing, and that is survival. He wants to get out, he wants to break out, and he wants to run away as fast as he can, and then load his guns and come back. Because he's got to deal with this situation. All right? He's very specific. His priorities are simplistic. And folks, as silly as that is, and, and it is very silly, okay? And as much as I really do live in that second reality, and that's silly. The fact of the matter is, when we come to these petitions from the kingdom citizen, it's because that human being has seen God for who he is. He's seen himself in comparison. And he's desperate. And priorities get very specific. You don't find this kingdom prayer, as we study these petitions, to be frivolous, to be superficial, to be merely external or silly. These are specific and desperate priorities for the kingdom citizen. And folks, these are hard for us to get because we are plush American Christians. This doesn't make sense. This is radical renewal of our thinking. This drives us to see God for who he is, to see ourselves in light of who he is, and then to be so driven by what we see, to be desperate for the priorities that show themselves here in Christ's model prayer. The kingdom citizen sees and prays for what is most needed and priority in his or her life as they come before the Father who is in heaven. Christian prayer is God-centered at every level. So let's look then at what we do pray for. What are the three powerful petitions that the kingdom citizen prays for when in this model prayer from our Lord Jesus himself? Number one, the kingdom citizen prays for God to meet physical needs. He prays for God to meet physical needs. Verse 11 is so familiar to us. Give us this day our daily bread. Bread here is the real physical bread, the stuff that you can make in your bread maker. That is what we're talking about here, and it represents the physical needs of the body. And the kingdom citizen depends upon the God whom he worships for the provision of his physical needs. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, This bread represents everything necessary for the preservation of life for the kingdom citizen. Now, some well-intentioned, no doubt, have wanted to make bread mean more or help out the meaning of bread to mean more than bread. And so many of you have it sitting on your kitchen table, your daily bread, right? You've seen this, and there are jokes about that. We'll leave those alone. There is a little publication called The Daily Bread, and that leaves you with the understanding that your daily bread is actually your spiritual daily resource that you would like God to give you. Well-intentioned. But this gives us no hint that that's what this is the prayer for here. This is a physical prayer, and this would have made a lot more sense and been a whole lot easier to apply in first century Christianity and in first century kingdom citizens than it is for us today. There is no need to spiritualize the wording of bread here to mean something other than the physical sustenance which God provides. Same with manna in the Old Testament. Don't let yourself as a Bible student come to the passages talking about manna and then turn manna into your spiritual provision. No, it was actually manna. 
And God actually cared enough about his people that he provided miraculous food so that they would live. Worship him for that. And allow that to direct you to your own prayer life that God would sustain you today. That he would provide for your physical needs. Now, interestingly, the ESV helps us here with another one of those footnotes. If you follow in your footnote, and you probably will see this in other translations as well, you may see a note that says, or, and here's another translation, our bread for tomorrow. And that is actually a better translation of what's actually there. Daily bread is better trans or rawly translated in a very wooden sense. We're praying for God to give us the bread for tomorrow. We need that today. That's the prayer. Give us today the bread we need for tomorrow. In other words, provide for the physical needs of our lives. Give us today what is necessary for us to live another day on this earth. This would not have been a difficult prayer for the first century family because most of the people to whom Jesus was originally talking to were living lives that were hand to mouth. They were living day to day. They actually were praying that there would be food tomorrow for them. That God would make provision so that they would have something to give their children and their wives to eat. And you can understand right off the bat why this is so hard for us to grasp. It is so hard for us to think of God as the one who gives us the very preserving elements of our physical life. Because our pantries are full. Our fridges are full. How many of you, like me, have gone to the fridge, your spouse has said, you want something to eat? Yeah, I think I may want something to eat. Open up the fridge and go, eh, nothing to eat. There's nothing there. Open up the pantry, look in the pantry. There are cans everywhere. There are boxes that make cakes, and there are, there are all kinds of products that take a matter of minutes to give us all kinds of food. Just look and go, ah, out of the 18 boxes of cereal, nothing really appeals. They got nothing. Babe, we got nothing to eat. We need to go order pizza. Right? We got nothing to eat around this house. Why don't we buy more Doritos? Right? How many of you have fallen into this trap? This is the very idea that makes it so difficult for us to see this as a priority. Folks, if God does not provide for you today, you will not eat. That's the God you serve. He's the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the one who is to be hallowed. He is to be seen as completely outside of us. And he is the provider for the physical needs of his people. This is extremely hard for the 21st century Christian to pray. For we are blessed with wealth beyond belief and a worldview that encourages us to rejoice in our self-sufficiency. You know why this is tough? You know why we don't pray this way? You know why our petition is not for God? In your grace, supply what we need for tomorrow. Because your world tells you it's all about you supplying what you have for tomorrow. And pat yourself on the back because you've got a good retirement plan. You've got a full set of shelves of food. You've got more clothes than you could ever wear. Pat yourself on the back. Well done. You've done a great job. Kingdom perspective is not so. That will not do in the kingdom. James 1.17 tells us that every single good gift comes from God himself. 
Even later in this passage, you'll see Jesus addressing these same people in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious or worried about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body or what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? This is the consuming reality of this petition. The kingdom citizen is aware not of his own self-sufficiency, but rather of their self-insufficiency to provide even for their physical needs. You only have worked. You have only worked and received money for the sake of your future provision because God in His grace has allowed you to work and receive an income. You have only stockpiled food and clothing and shelter because God in His gracious plan has made that His will for your life. It is God who provides And if God removes His blessing, you will not eat unless He again provides. I just ask you, because I ask myself, do you find yourself inwardly laughing at such a notion? Really? Honestly, folks? Is this just kind of funny on the inside? I mean, come on. That I'm going to eat tomorrow? I'm going to eat tomorrow. Okay? I'm going to eat tomorrow. Do we find this difficult? Because if we find this notion difficult and foreign to our thinking, then we need to examine our hearts, we need to find where our confidence truly lies, and when we find where our confidence truly lies, we will find ourselves either crying out in prayer, give us today what we need for today, or we will find ourselves confidently going through life hindered in prayer. The number one enemy to our prayer life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the number one enemy is our own sufficiency in our thinking. We don't pray because we don't need to pray in our own thoughts. The kingdom here, the kingdom citizen, and the kingdom citizen who's in prayer is so centered on God himself and on who God is and on what he desires and what he plans and focused on the kingdom as the end goal focused on God as the singular provider, that he falls on his face and asks this simple request, give us this day our daily bread. So it's not the every whim that we bring to the Father chiefly, but it is our concern for his faithful provision for our physical needs. Your Father in heaven rejoices to hear you bring your needs before him. He does. It brings him joy for his people, for his children, to acknowledge by asking him to provide and asking him in faith that he will provide, to acknowledge by that prayer that they confess that only he can provide for the needs of his people. That is worship. That is prayer that honors our Father. And it is prayer that will consume us if we rightly see him for who he is and in turn rightly see ourselves for who we are. He is God, and we are not. Give us this day our daily bread. Number two, what do we pray for? We pray that God will meet our physical needs. Number two, we pray that God would grant parental forgiveness. Number two, we pray 
that God would grant parental forgiveness. Verse 12, and forgive us. The and here connects all of these petitions together. Give us this day our daily bread and furthering the thought now of the kingdom citizen, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The kingdom citizen prays first that God would meet his physical needs. Secondly, that God would grant parental forgiveness. Now, when we get to verse 12, we've just run into one of the most discussed and most troublesome passages in this disciple's prayer. And you, I trust, have your theological thinking cap on enough to know why this causes some questions. Forgive us our debts. Debts here at the outset is sin. All right, A debt that is owed to God is sin. And Luke 11, verse 4, the counter or the complementary passage where Luke accounts for the same prayer, uses the word sins. Forgive us our sins. That is exactly what we're talking about. And so the question comes up, why is it that the believer, the kingdom citizen, is praying that his sin would be forgiven? Right? Doesn't that raise a theological question? Why are we praying that? Are we not forgiven? Uh, That's a legitimate question, and you're all looking back at me like, well, yeah, that's why you're up there. Answer it. We know what the question is. Just answer the question. Some have answered this question by clearly stating that there is no need to pray this prayer. That this particular component of the prayer is not necessary for the true believer. Why? Well, one group, the justification crowd, we'll call them, they have a right understanding of salvation. They understand that at the point of justification, at the point of conversion, when you were saved, you were forgiven. Judicially, legally, before God, Christ stood in for you, and you are counted as righteous. Romans 8.1 There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You will never see one moment of punishment for your sin. Christ bore it all. Ephesians 1.7 tells us the same thing. Christ has paid for our sin. And so they say this must be dealing with some future eschatological component. This must not be for now. This has to be for when the law will be back in some form And we'll be living, or those who are living at that point will be under it. And yet that leaves us with a hole. I mean, first of all, no one was ever, no one was ever justified under the law. Only by faith. That's what we've been studying in Galatians in our Sunday school class. Secondly, our justification by faith does not mean that we do not live in a present reality of sin. Correct? The principle of sin is very active. In fact, We've dealt with it this morning. Whether we knew it or not, we've either given into it or we have battled it and seen the victory that Christ has won in our conquering over sin. That leads us to the second group. There is the group that says, I'm justified, therefore this has no meaning to me. The second group says, I am holy, therefore this has no meaning to me. We'll call these folks the holiness crowd. The holiness crowd says, I don't sin anymore. Therefore, why would I be praying for forgiveness? I don't sin. That's part of what happened to me in my sanctification process. I've completed it. That's a problem. That's a problem because that's not honest. Secondly, that's a problem because of what 1 John 1.8 says. 
In fact, that's really good for us. Let's turn over there to 1 John chapter 1. And I just let you know that I'm aware that my hopes for finishing are dashed upon the rocks of time. Okay? Got it. 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, the we here is a consistent we. That we follows through, and it is the we of believers. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I mean, the claim that we're not sinning, we don't have sin present with us, is to lie to ourselves. Verse 9, we're going to touch in just a minute. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And verse 10 says, here's another deception. If we say we have never sinned or not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us because he told us that we sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there are two groups that their answer to the difficulty raised here of the kingdom citizen asking for forgiveness who have answered that with, well, you just don't have to do it. Those conclusions are not satisfactory. We are justified. We are counted as righteous legally before our Father, and yet we battle with sin even today. Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul in the maturity of his life is crying out to God, who will deliver me? Why? Because I do what I do not want to do, and what I do want to do, I don't do. I'm battling with sin. And folks, if the Apostle Paul is living that reality, how much more are we living that reality as those in a fallen world? Neither of these petitions or neither of these positions, rather, on this petition come to a satisfactory conclusion, for they both end up removing what is clearly taught by Christ for the Christian experience. I mean, the bottom line of why that doesn't work is because he told us to. And to say that we're not going to do what Christ has told us to do, we better have a very good reason. And I don't think there is one in this case. Now, there is an explanation, and I think this is the best explanation. As we come to this prayer, we see God for who he is. We see ourselves in light of that. We ask for his provision for our daily needs. And now we come to this parental forgiveness. This is not a prayer for salvation. This is the prayer of one who has experienced justification. And it is a prayer to our Father in heaven for parental forgiveness. This is an object lesson that is taught throughout Scripture. In fact, back in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, we have the context being believers. And if we believers will confess our sins... Our Father will forgive us our sins. I know that's probably been a verse you've used for evangelism, but that is speaking directly to the Christian. Not only that, in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, we find out that our loving Heavenly Father chastises His children. Now, why does He chastise? That is discipline, corporal punishment. Why does He do that to us? He does that to us when we sin to discipline us and correct us so that we might better reflect his character. So our prayer here, folks, is not for salvation forgiveness, but rather for the ongoing relational forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Now, there's one place that I want to look at before we go this morning. John chapter 13, we see an awesome illustration of this coming from the mouth of our Lord Jesus himself. John chapter 13. And here in the context, you'll remember that Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Unbelievable picture of what's happening here. 
Here's our Lord Himself. Jesus, verse 3 says, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, and He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, He tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and He began to wash the filthy, disgusting feet of the disciples and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around Him. So here He is, He's got a sash tied around Him that's a towel and He's washing the disciples' feet. And this, no doubt, was so shocking to the disciples that they sat in stunned silence. Except one of the disciples never sat long in stunned silence. He always talked. His name was Peter. I really communicate well with Peter. I feel like I I get Peter. Here comes Peter, and he's concerned about this. I mean, Lord, whatever your intention is, I'm not sure what's going on here, but this is not a good idea. So Peter says to him, you'll never wash my feet. Good move, Peter. Really good move. Quick, rash, didn't think totally through this. Jesus said in verse 7 that he didn't, they didn't understand exactly what he was doing now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter says to him, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Good old Peter, well-intentioned. He's not going to let the Lord himself, the Messiah himself, kneel down and wash his disgusting feet. He says, it's never going to happen, Lord, not on my watch. And the Lord's response to him is, if it doesn't happen, you're not with me. Poor Peter. Peter, he's going, oh man, he's probably red in the face again. And he says, Lord, verse 9, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. He's like, okay, if it's about being with you, then wash everything. He starts dipping his head down into the bowl of water. Just wash it all, Lord. I want to be as much with you as I can be. Jesus says, oh no, that's not necessary. And here's the word picture that paints for us an illustration of what we find in the disciples' prayer in verse 12. Now Jesus said to him in verse 10 here in John chapter 13, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet, put on his outer garment, resumed his place, he understood, do, I, do not understand what I have done for you. Here's the picture. Peter says, Lord, if I need to be connected to you by washing of my feet, then I want my whole body washed. Just start with my head and go down from there. I want it all to be attached to you. And Jesus says, Peter, that's not necessary. You've already been washed. You've already been washed. All that needs to be done at this point is for your feet to be washed. For the one who is clean, all that were there except for Judas, who was not a true follower of Christ, there needs to be an ongoing process of relational cleansing. It is the forgiveness that we desire from our Father as His children, not as those set opposed to Him as enemies. He has made peace through Christ, And yet we, in the sinful situation in which we live, are left with the reality of sin. And as we live in the struggle with sin, we fall and we go before our Father and we acknowledge that we need His forgiveness. We're indebted to Him. Now, the second part of that little verse in in the disciples' prayer back in Matthew chapter 6, the second part gives us 
an illustration or a furtherance, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And here we see on display in the life of the kingdom citizen the very reality that we're desiring from the Father himself. The corresponding action of forgiveness will be present only in those whom God's grace has transformed from darkness to light. In other words, the reality of the forgiveness that exists in the heart of the kingdom citizen for others. Okay, If you legitimately have others transgress against you and you forgive them, forgiveness, not as the world gives forgiveness, which is some kind of holding it still in the back of your mind or trying to forget it, but an acknowledgement of the sin that was done against you and a willingness to set that aside as if it has never happened. That present reality in you as a kingdom citizen is the very basis upon which you are praying for that same that same process to continue in your daily parental life with God, your Father in heaven. You see this being worked out in your life and you desire for that continued process in your existence. Wow, we did not get anywhere close. But that leaves us then jumping over to verses 14 and 15 for Jesus' commentary on this section, he gives further idea on this forgiveness that we require and that we ask and that we pray for. And then we'll conclude with verse 13 and the desire and the petition and the prayer first that God would meet our physical needs, that he would grant parental forgiveness. And then lastly, that God would give us providential protection, that he would provide for us providential protection. And we'll touch on all of these the next time we study this next Sunday. If we leave with anything this morning, we leave with this very uh, strong reality that comes from this disciple's prayer. And that is, our prayer begins with God himself. It begins with the reality of who he is and the desires of his heart and the constraints of his will and his standards. And it flows from our perspective of him then to seeing in desperation the very specific, the very narrow And the very clear priorities of what we need. We need God to provide even for our daily sustenance. And so we come as those who recognize that reality and we ask him. We need his ongoing parental forgiveness. His constant restoration of us into the right relationship with him. And we come before him and we ask him to do that. And he does. And lastly, in verse 13, we'll study next week, we recognize that when we are brought into situations where temptation may occur, we are weak and our flesh is weak and we desire for him to direct us in such a way as to preserve us from from falling or from failure. All of that leads to one very necessary conclusion for us this morning. The disciples' prayer is for disciples. This is so no-brainer, I know, but the disciples' prayer is for disciples. And it, and it really begs of us that we examine our lives, that we take a hard look at who we are. What do we truly believe, and how does what we believe affect what we live like? And in this case, how does what we know to be true about God affected how we speak to Him, how we communicate to Him in prayer? If you have a low view of God, you'll have a very shallow lifestyle of prayer. If we have a high view of God and results in a legitimate and desperate view of ourselves, 
it will result in a very vital and a very living communication with him that puts him at the center and looks to him for our most elementary, our most priority needs. And it is these prayers that bring delight to the heart of our Father, and he has promised to answer them. The prayer life of the kingdom citizen is a testimony to the relationship that he or she already enjoys with the king. What a blessing it is to us. May we be found new and improved in our prayer life before our Heavenly Father who loves to hear the heart cry of His children. The heart cry of His children recognizes His power, their desperation, and calls upon His name. This is our privilege to commune with our King and to do so in a way that is informed, not meaningless, and to do so in a way that is genuine, not hypocritical, a vital communication, not an empty, meaningless practice of prayer. Let's set our course that direction even this week. We're about to head into a brand new week. May it be a week of prayer for Grace Church of the Valley. Prayer that is vital. Good prayer where there has been bad prayer. New prayer where there's been no prayer. Because you and I together as a body see God for who he is, see ourselves for who we are, and fall on our face before.